Alleluia, alleluia. Blessed are you, O Virgin Mary. Without dying, you won the martyr's crown beneath the cross of the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. My dear friends, the good news, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. May the words of the Holy Gospel blot out our sins. Amen. My dear friends, it's an auspicious day to start our retreat with the Sorrowful Mother. So I thank God for that. I didn't consider it until today. So I thank God for this uh, beautiful beginning of our time together. And I praise God for his... Um, for his planning, his God's planning, his perfect planning. In the life of our Blessed Mother, we don't know a whole lot about it. There's not a whole lot in the Gospel about Mary, but it's very evident that she experienced a lot of suffering. If you just think about the suffering from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew conceived, after the angel Gabriel left, Mary encountered suffering after suffering from that moment forward. She had to tell her parents that she was with child. She had to tell Joseph. She had to take that trip to see Elizabeth, which was not an easy trip for anyone to make. Uh, you know, they had to get Joseph and Mary had to get married at some point. That couldn't have been an easy situation either. And then she had to flee into Egypt when the innocent babies were slaughtered. That must have been a horrible suffering as well. And even if you go think outside the biblical text, it's, it's done so well. For example, in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, when Jesus is being scourged at the pillar, I've forgotten how many lashes that was. Anybody remember they got from the shroud? A lot. So imagine Mary watching that. And in the movie, she's watching Jesus being scourged at the pillar. And then out, I think, you know, out of a, a shattered heart and out of sheer love, she tries to wipe up the blood. Both her and Mary Magdalene try to wipe up the blood of Jesus. That's all they can do. They couldn't stop what was happening. So afterwards, they just tried to wipe up the blood. And in our beautiful... Gospel today, Matthew chapter 
19, when I was serving in St. Louis, the, the, the hospital chapel was so beautiful there, and it had this very scene in, in marble right over the altar, so beautiful. Woman, behold your son, and then to the disciple, behold your mother. But when you consider Mary at the foot of the cross, that's what I like to call this feast. I was telling, it's Don, right? Bill, I was just telling Bill, not you, the guy behind you. David, I was just telling David before Mass that I, I like to think of this as the mother of sorrows because that helps keep the connection of Mary's suffering much better than Lady, Our Lady of Sorrows, Mother of Sorrows. So for Jesus to be, you know, stripped and nude and beaten and forced to carry that cross in front of his mother and then to hang there on the cross in front of his mother, so that increased his suffering. And I think uh, certainly you th can think of Mary's suffering again, suffering while her son was on the cross. And so today the church has us, you know, meditate on these things, on the sufferings of Mary and the sufferings of Jesus, so that we realize that, number one, is no one is above suffering. Someone thinks, I shouldn't suffer, or why me? Well, Jesus and Mary suffered, and suffered a lot. So we're not, we're not greater than Jesus, we're not greater than Mary. We can expect suffering in our life. And it's not a matter of if, but when suffering comes into our life. It is the reason Jesus came in the way that he did, entering into human suffering to, to change the meaning of it to change the meaning of suffering forever. It's no longer meaningless, and it's no longer a waste, and it no, it's no longer just something that's a tragedy. It is tragic, but because of what Jesus has done and what Mary has done, now it can have a purpose. It has a purpose now. So when, we, when something happens bad, there's a couple, I don't know, I only thought of two things we can do. There's probably more, but... We can become really bitter about it. We can let our heart turn bitter about some suffering we had to endure. That's one thing we could do. Or we could uh, you know, make it the center of our life. We had to suffer something, so now that's the whole center of my existence is this suffering, and this defines who I am. I was helping someone this summer, and he had lost a leg, so he had a wooden leg. And he said, someone asked him, when he, when he lost his leg, somebody asked him, well, how, how are you going to live with one leg? He goes, I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> and that's the answer, right? We don't, don't make the suffering the center. The suffering is the periphery of our life, not the center of our life. The center of our life is, is joy and is Jesus and is the joyfulness of what God who we are, and what God has given us to do. That's the center of our life. Suffering's the periphery. So when we do suffer, not if, when we do suffer, when it comes, we simply unite that to Jesus on the cross. It's certainly what we're doing primarily at every Mass. We're uniting our suffering with the suffering of Jesus on the cross, and he's presenting our life to the Father. 
And we do that outside of Mass, too, so that our whole life can become an offering. You know, every irritation, every tribulation, every suffering, uh, every joy, every celebration, every brushing of the teeth, every making of the bed, every doing the laundry, every part of our life becomes an offering to God when we intend it and when we ask God to receive our life as an offering. And I think God, tell me what you think of this, but I think God told me the other day, even our sleep, we can even offer our sleep to God as a sacrifice. I thought, why not? There's no part of my life that's wasted when I turn it over to God. So lately I've been offering God my six hours of sleep. That's all I get, about six hours. I've been offering God my six hours of sleep. So when these sufferings come, it, it, we can change the meaning of it by offering it for the salvation of the world, for other people, just like Jesus did. He's not hanging on the cross for himself, but he's offering that suffering for the salvation of the world, and we can unite our cross, our sufferings, our whole life with him. I want to close with St. James. It's also found in Colossians chapter 1 or St. James chapter 1. So you might want to spend some time meditating with Colossians 1 or James chapter 1. My brothers, count it pure joy when you are involved in every sort of trial. Realize that when your faith is tested, this makes for endurance. And let endurance come to its perfection so that you may be fully mature, mature and lacking nothing. And if any of you is without wisdom, let him ask it from God, who gives generously and ungrudgingly to all, and it will be given him. End quote. There's our tie back to Mary, right? Who's the seed of wisdom but our mother? Baruch 5, 1 through 9. So this is, a, this is meant as an encouragement for us on our retreat. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together on this retreat. Thank you for bringing so many of my friends here to be with me today as we investigate and meditate on the role of joy in our lives. And please help us to be open to you and receptive to you and to your word. Please send holy angels to this retreat center to guard us, to cherish, to protect, defend, and dwell with us. Please increase in us the grace uh, to become one with the Holy Trinity. Please open our mind and heart to this, to our readings and prayers and conversations. We ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put on the robe of righteousness from God. Put on your head the diadem of the glory of the everlasting. For God will show your splendor. For your name will be forever called by God, 
peace of righteousness and glory and godliness. Arise, O Jerusalem, stand up upon the heights and look forward to the east to see your children gathered from the west and the east at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered them. For, there, for they went forth from you on foot, led away by their enemies, but God will bring them back to you, carried in glory as on a royal throne. For God has ordered that every high mountain and the everlasting hills be made low, and that the valleys be filled up to make level ground, so that Israel may walk safely in the glory of God. The woods and every fragrant tree have shaded Israel at God's command. For God will lead Israel with joy in the light of his glory, with the mercy and righteousness that come from him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you know when you hear the word Israel in Jerusalem in scripture, that that's talking about the church. And we are we make up the church. So when you hear these things about Israel, Jerusalem, it's, uh, it is fulfilled in Jesus and it's pointing to, you know, to us in our time and how God is doing those things for us in our time. Prayer to the Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are the third person of the Blessed Trinity. You are the spirit of truth and love and holiness proceeding from the Father and the Son and equal to them in all things. I adore you and I love you with all my heart. Teach me to know and to seek God by whom and for whom I was created. Fill my heart with a holy fear and a great love of him. Give me compunction and patience and do not let me fall into sin. Increase faith and hope and charity in me and bring forth in me all the virtues proper to my state in life Help me to grow in your cardinal virtues, your seven gifts, and your twelve fruits. Make me a faithful follower of Jesus, an obedient child of the church. Help me to help my neighbor. Give me the grace and the commandments to receive the sacraments worthily. Raise me to holiness in the state of life to which you have called me, and lead me through a happy death to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Grant also, Holy Spirit, giver of all good gifts, this special favor which I now ask. If it be for the honor and glory of my well-being and those whom I'm praying for. Glory to the, be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So if you Google something like this, I just got this from the internet. You just Google, I am, I am scriptures, and, and you'll get a whole list. Or whatever you're struggling with, you know, scriptures about depression, scriptures about loneliness, whatever it is that you might, you just Google it, and then you get a nice list like this, and then you, I just numbered it, so each day of the week, each day of the month, I get a different scripture to to pray with that day. What's that? Where do they into? into your computer. Me? They come into your computer. Is that what you're asking me? How do you do that? Oh, how do you Google? They just come 
Yeah, if you if you do a search, that comes right up. Yeah. Well, for those that do, this is a great way to get a collection of scriptures for you to pray with. And then you number them, and uh, then you get one for each day. So today's the 15th, and you here's how I do it. In Christ, I am assured of all good things work together for good. From Romans 8:28, and we know that all things. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Amen. And that gives you a little focus for the day, a little scripture, a strengthening of your identity. The devil, there's two major attacks of the devil. One is to get us to isolate ourselves. He doesn't want us to be around other people. And the other is to attack our identity, to make us feel inadequate you're not good enough, blah, blah, blah. So this is why it's good to strengthen your identity with the truth which we receive from God. <laughs> I, can, I can give you a copy of what I did. How about that? Just ask me for it. I'll give you a copy. Okay, Joy. So this isn't something that Chris Stefanik just, um, wherever he is, made up. I lost him. He was around. This isn't something that Christophanic just made up. It is something that Jesus talks about. And I put my example there. John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And, of course, one of my favorite passages from, the, from John, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I've come to give you life that you may have it abundantly. This abundant life, this joyful life is something that Jesus desires for us. And uh, this joy comes from being in relationship with him. It's not a joy that's um, disconnected from our relationship with God. The joy comes from being in relationship with God. Uh, sometimes I, there were some great, uh, I might come across a quote and I just call them first principles. So here's a first principle from St. Francis to Sales. Make a fresh start every day. There's a great first principle for your life. That everyone wonder what happened yesterday, each day of our life, we can make a fresh start. And we can ask God, because it's so important in the spiritual life, to ask God for the things that we need from him. Ask him to grow in that joy. So the first thing I want to get a hold of is Spire, S-P-I-R-E. I put it up there. And that represents what Thomas Aquinas had different names for them. This is a, a new guy, Tal Shahar. His name is Tal Shahar, psychologist. He put it this way, but it's basically the same thing Thomas Aquinas was talking about, that there are five dynamics to the human person. So S is for spiritual. P is for physical, I is for intellectual, R is for relational or sexuality, and E is for emotions. So Adam and Eve were on the earth. They were Those five aspects were like this. They worked perfectly. And then when Adam and Eve turned God down and sinned and decided not to have God in their lives, and then they became like this, and our five aspects of the human person got all messed up. They don't work right anymore. They did for Jesus and Mary. They were created again like Adam and Eve with those five parts 
being in place. But these five parts were jumbled at original sin and part of what is happening on our journey of holiness is we're being brought back into proper working order. Our spiritual, intellectual, physical, intellectual, relational, and our emotions. So that part of being made holy, you can hear it in the word holy and whole, Holy, part of holiness is being made whole again. God bringing healing into those parts of our life and, bring, and putting us back into the order uh, by which God had designed us. So this, so that's called, you might pray for that by asking for God to, for integration, that he's integrating those five dynamics of the human person. And the thing about it is, um, if you... Think about it as a true self and a false self. Sometimes that kind of language is used in our tradition, that there's a true self who God made you to be, and then there's this false self, the part of us that is sinning and broken and not really who we are, the part of us that is not going to make it to heaven. That's why it's so afraid of dying, because that part of us won't be in heaven. There's no room for sin and all this brokenness in heaven. So that false self... Uh, is, tries to present itself as, as this is who we are and tries to take over our life. And we can have a false self in any one of those five dynamics of the person. You can have a false self in your spiritual life on the throne, a false self. Some people practically worship their own body, don't they? They make their body, they have a false self about their body. You can have a false self in your intellect, uh, in control, a false self in your sexuality or your relationality. That's what's going uh, bonkers in the world right now. And then a false self could be in control of your emotional life. So every time I pray the prayer of Mary, the Magnificat, she says, cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly. I think of these false selves that Mary is saying that we got to cast down if you have a false self in your spiritual realm. It's got to be cast down so your true self can come and sit on the throne of who you are. First, so we have to start with the distinction, I think, right, right away. Once we got that idea that we're being integrated and made whole again, and that um, there, we have an enemy, the devil, who's trying to talk us into becoming someone that, that we're not, someone who God has not made us to be talking us into many kinds of sin. But the word joy itself has to have a distinction. So psychological joy and then supernatural joy. So these two things are the same name, but they're a little bit different. Psychological joy, going from that emotional side of ourself, that psychological side, the emotional side. Psychological joy is the emotion evoked by well-being success or good fortune or by the prospect of possessing what you desire. Things are going well. You can be psychologically happy about it. When you have well-being, success, good fortune, the prospect of possessing something that you really desire. Another word for joy would be delight. Delight. And it's so wonderful. And Dr. Bob Schutz, in his... Uh, teaching on this inner healing that I was talking about earlier. He says, if you can translate what, what, what the Father said to Jesus with that word delight instead of pleased, 
This is my son in whom I am delighted. Delighted. So God, was, the Father was delighted in Jesus, and Jesus is delighted in us because we are also uh, uh, sons of God as well. We are members of uh, God's holy uh, adopted family. So delight or joy or a state of happiness or felicity. So the way Thomas did the emotions is pretty helpful. I got that here. And I'm, I'm just amazed that it's holding up after all these hundreds of years that this Thomistic psychology is still good, but it still holds up. So it basically it goes on, emotions go something like, there's something I like and something I dislike. And things that we like, we desire, and things that we don't like, we have an aversion towards. And so the emotions that move us towards joy, you know, there's something we desire, we love it, we get it, hey, now we're happy, we have joy. This is psychological joy. And then there's something we dislike, aversion, uh, we hate it, we can't get around it, so we have sorrow. And that's how the emotions uh, generally work. These other ones, uh, the concupiscible and irascible emotions, they drive us. They're, they're also called now assertive emotions. You know, anger can work both ways. So, but anyways, hope helps us, and hope and courage help us get to joy, while despair and fear lead us into sorrow emotionally. And that's how Thomas worked it up. And so not that the emotions are bad, the emotions are good. God made emotions. Emotions are not sinful. God made the emotions so that we could be more human. Think if you didn't have emotions, you'd be a toaster or something. You wouldn't be human. So to have emotions is to be human, and God gave us to them because they help us really get to joy. Uh, yes, sometimes, so, you know, anger, these emotions here, anger and despair, despair and fear, or anger and fear, basically these two help us avoid difficult things or get through a difficult situation. They're not sinful in themselves. It's only sinful if, they, if you start living in them. They're like emergency emotions. They're like an ambulance that comes when it's needed. But if you, if you live in fear or live in anger, well, that's not what God intended. There's something wrong there. So you need, you need to get some healing for that. So anger and fear are, are like these emergency emotions that help us get through something difficult. So that would be, you know, the psychological or the natural order for joy. That's what joy is. It doesn't count for spiritual. Just think about it. When the early Christians were being thrown to the lions to be eaten alive, they were, they were filled with joy. So it wasn't this that they were experiencing, because they were going to be eaten alive by a lion. But they came, they went in there singing songs and filled with joy, and over and over again, we see, I think that's part of the way we we converted Rome. We were just so happy when they were killing us. And I always wonder, how do we ever convert the Vikings or the barbarian tribes? How do we talk the Vikings into, into Christ? You know, I think it was because when they were killing us. We have this supernatural gift of joy. That's what I want to talk about now. The supernatural aspect. Supernaturally, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit are lift, listed in Galatians 5. I think I wrote it up there. Galatians 5, uh, 22 through 23. 
And in the Protestant translation, you have nine. In the Catholic translation, you have 12 because Catholics like to make distinctions, so they got a couple extra, they made a couple distinctions there, and I don't even understand all that. I have it here with me, but I'd have to really look at that. But the thing is, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't write them all down because the fruits are, fruits are generated from your actions. Our actions bear fruits. That's wisdom 315, wisdom 315. Your actions bear fruit in your life. It's easy to see with sin. If you drink a fifth of Jack Daniels every day, it's going to bear a fruit in your life, which is the diseased liver, and you're going to die. Right? So our actions bear fruit. So when we are living in connection with the indwelling of the Holy Trinity inside of us, when we are living out those sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit, when we are living in the virtues of faith, hope, and love, and prudence, justice, temperance, these are all gifts of the Spirit. When we're living in those and we're doing what God would have us to do, it it bears fruit in our life. Or another way I like to think about it is even the gifts of the Holy Spirit give gifts. Because all those gifts of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold gift, the um, the spiritual gifts, the charismatic gifts, the mystical, the high mystical gifts, all these gifts of the Holy Spirit give us more gifts, which are called fruits. And they're, you know, a beginning of them, or nine of them, or twelve of them, are listed here. In Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It's a great examination of conscience, by the way. Because also listed in Galatians 5 are the fruits of a sinful life. You're going to see when you follow the devil, there's fruits involved with that. And they're listed right before the fruits of the Spirit. And they are. Love, joy, and peace are the first three. Aren't those beautiful? Love, joy, and peace. So when I, uh, when I was in the order, when I was in the house of studies... And we were seeing, does this brother, do we think this brother is being called to be a Dominican? I would look for these fruits. Is he a person of love? Is he a person of joy? Is he a person of peace? And then comes patience. Oh, this is the Catholic version. Patience, uh, benignity, goodness, longanimity, mildness, faith, modesty, constancy, and chastity. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are the gifts of the gifts. And the Greek word is, I put it up there, kara, which is related to the Greek word for grace, which is charis. Charis equals grace. There's two real distinctions of grace. Grace is a fancy word, means God's help. We can't do this on your own. You don't get love, joy, peace, patience on your own. It's like these are gifts from God that he gives to us. So these gifts, uh, there's two kinds of grace. One is sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is in the sacraments. That's how we get changed and to become one with God, one with the Trinity, through the grace of the sacraments. Holy Communion, especially. I know all the sacraments revolve around Holy Communion, just like in our solar system, the sun, all the planets revolve around the sun. All the sacraments revolve around the Holy Eucharist because it is Jesus himself. And he is bringing this sanctifying grace, this grace that changes us. And then the other kind of gifts that the scriptures talk about are called the, the, the charismata, the charismata, the charismatic gifts. And I put down a great listing for them there in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, again, Romans 12. And I put their location there in the Summa Theologica. 
St. Thomas, you know, the second part of the second part of the Summa, Thomas really wrote really well about how the Holy Spirit operates in our life, how these gifts work in our life. And then it's in the Catechism, um, 798 to 809. So this whole idea of the Holy Spirit bringing us gifts to live the spiritual life and to accomplish the mission. Remember, our mission from God is really twofold, a breathing in and a breathing out. A breathing in is, is our interior life growing in holiness, becoming closer to God. Our breathing out is the love of our neighbor. Or if you take it how Jesus said it, which he gave it to us in one sentence, so we could never get confused, never forget it, never wonder what our mission is. Love God, love our neighbor, and love ourselves. So loving God, breathing in, our interior life, our worship of God, our growing in holiness, breathing out the love of our neighbor, um, you know, through the spiritual, the corporal works of mercy, uh, social justice, like protesting over at the abortion uh, clinic here in town, that's loving our neighbor. Or, or intercessory prayer, or, um, you know, uh, I'm missing one, but there's five of them. But anyways, and then loving ourself is this, what is talked about, we'll talk about later, is the moral life. I, I gave a reference for it there. So the moral life is loving ourself, one second, loving ourself, growing in, um, growing in holiness, fighting against sin, uh, using the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you for the building up of the kingdom. That's, that's how we love ourselves. We say, in other words, like Mary, we say yes to God. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, I'm sorry, Colette. that last one, St. Thomas, what was that reference to? Um, the Summa Theologica, okay. which is all online, too. You can, you, can, you, can look, you can put in that reference, and it'll come up for you. There's a great website called New Advent. It has a lot of great Catholic stuff on it, including the 1911 Catholic Encyclopedia, which is so much better than our new Catholic Encyclopedia. So Romans 14.7, St. Paul puts it this way so beautifully. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. So holiness and righteousness go together. They're not the same thing. Righteousness is uh, seeking justice for other people in the world. So you're a righteous person when you're making sure everybody gets what they deserve. That's righteousness or that's being a, a, a person who is seeking justice for other people and then peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, those who are looking around every day and seeing who, who's not getting what they need. How can I supply in this person's life the things that I owe them? Because the idea of justice is we, all, we owe people certain things because that's my brother, that's my sister in Christ. I, so I owe them certain things like forgiveness and kindness and maybe a smile, things like that, to be light about it. But we owe them certain things. So we are trying to get a life that's led by the Holy Spirit, a, a spirit-led life that um, 
this, this, this life led by the Holy Spirit uses the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully you know those. If not, get a, you should be uh, praying for it to be grown in these sevenfold gifts of the Spirit every day. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, then two C's, courage and counsel. And then the two odd ones that don't go together, piety and fear of the Lord. So these, these sevenfold gifts were given to us at our baptism. And those are for our own salvation. I think you can see it. So you need, no, you need knowledge. You need the data, right? You need to understand a lot about God. You need the knowledge. And then you need understanding. So how does all that knowledge fit together? So you need knowledge. You need the data plus how it fits together, understanding how it, how it works. And then wisdom is... How do I put this into practice in the world, taking my experience, what the church teaches? Now, how do I put this into practice in the world? That, that's wisdom, putting God's um, knowledge and understanding in, into, into practice. So you need knowledge, wisdom, understanding, once you, and you need counsel, which is either counsel is asking the Holy Spirit, what should I do here? I mean, that's a, a basic step. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? That's something I, I'm still working on getting better at doing myself. So Holy Spirit, counsel, or giving other people counsel when they come to you, trying to point them into the right direction. And then you need courage. You need to actually do the things that God is telling us to do. We can't just think about them and you know, have great theories about good things, but we have to actually have the courage to do the good things that God would want. Piety is seeing the presence of God everywhere in the world in every person and how God is, you know, present in our world and in the Eucharist and in so many ways, especially in the Eucharist. And so seeing that and then treating our brother and sister like God does dwell in them and treating things in the world like they are, uh, do belong to God or are, are showing his presence. And then fear the Lord. It isn't like I'm afraid of God. It does start out that way. So there's a threefold ladder of love that we all climb. So first, when we're young, you know, yes, we're afraid of going to hell. That's proper. But then as you get growing your love of God, now you're not so much afraid of going to hell, but you're afraid of hurting God with your sinful way of life. You don't want to hurt God anymore. You know, a venial sin is slapping Jesus. A mortal sin is punching him in the nose. And you just don't want... You don't want to slap Jesus. You don't want to punch him in the nose. You don't want to hurt God. And then the third level of love, which only few, very few of the saints get to, and the idea there is, well, Jesus suffered now, so I want to suffer. Jesus suffered on the cross, so I want to take on suffering for the salvation of souls too. Yes. Yeah, knowledge is the the data, the data. Yeah, you got holy water, rosary, stations of the cross. Okay. Now, how do they all work? Understanding. What do you do with holy water? What do you do with the stations of the cross? What do you? What's an altar? What's a priest? What's a de- I mean, there's a lot. We have a lot of knowledge, a lot of stuff in the Catholic Church. Understanding is how it fits together. So happiness then is what we're talking about. We're talking about happiness in Catholic tradition. It's called eudynamism or beatitude. Jesus calls it beatitude. 
Beatitude is this living in a state of happiness or a state of blessedness. And this is something that we're made for from God. We are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we are made for happiness. And that would sometimes is talked about as uh, truth, beauty, and goodness. So we are made for truth. And so everything true on this earth we can love and be all part of. But then God is ultimate truth. And we're made for beauty. So everything beautiful on this earth, we're all for it. We're supporting it. We love it. But God is ultimate beauty. And then we're made for love. And if so, and we're always, you know, we're always for love, but then God is ultimate love. So truth, beauty, goodness, I'm sorry, goodness, anything good we're on the side of, and then God is ultimate goodness. And I just thought, well, there's some other things we're kind of made for, it seems to me, just by thinking about it. And one was justice. You can't, can't get too much justice. We're made for joy. You can't get too much joy. And you're made for love. You can't get too much love. So I kind of think we're made for... Truth, beauty, goodness, justice, joy, and love. Just to kind of concretize for you what we're made for, because we're made in God's image. And happiness is uh, not psychological happiness, but spiritual happiness is knowing God and knowing that God is the ultimate happiness, the ultimate good of our life, the sunum bonum, the thing that we base our whole life on and We'll do anything to be in union with God, and we won't let anything in this world ever stand in our way than being with God and being in union with Him. Nothing on this, everything on this earth is a joke compared to God as our ultimate goodness and our ultimate um, happiness. And that's, of course, what heaven is. We, we're, we're, we, we, we will be in ultimate happiness with God, and that's what hell is. When we reject that, and then we are separated from God for all eternity. The moral life. I want to talk a little about the moral life. So the moral life, another way of thinking about the moral life are the shoulds. I should do this. I ought to do that. I could do that. That's the moral life. That's a big part of the moral life. And that's where God equips us with the fruits and the spiritual gifts. I didn't even get to them, did I? The spiritual gifts of the spirit, the charismatic gifts, then these high mystical gifts that some people get. Uh, we are, those are, we're being equipped for this moral life to act in the way that is right. And the moral life also is talking about the indwelling of the Trinity in each person, this indwelling of grace, and then the integration of the spire. That's all what, what I mean by the moral life. So human persons, we're created in God's image and likeness. And notice that's not just one word, two words. There's an and in there. So the image we can't lose, it's just like if you're born, you know, you can't change your mom and dad. You're, <laughs> you're born into, you're, that's, your, that's the image. You're made in the image of your mother and father. You can't change that. But the likeness is something we need to grow into, and this is the work of grace in our life. So we can grow. Our life is growing in likeness of Christ, growing, growing, coming more and more like Jesus. Uh, as Scott Hahn says, he's the big J, we're the little J. We keep growing to be more and more like him, or we're falling and becoming less and less like him, and we're falling away from God. All the spiritual greats, all the champions of this life say there's no, you're not standing still in the spiritual life. If you think you're standing still, you're actually worse off than you were before because you should be 
somewhere else. You should be better than you are now. So there's no standing still. There's no neutral time in the spiritual life. We're either moving towards God or moving away from him. And we've only got like 100 years right, to do this. So we don't have a whole lot of time to make, these, to make this move for God, to, make this, to, to turn our life totally towards whatever he wants from us. We don't have that long. So a human persons, we're, we're made in God's image. You know, and God's a spirit. So it doesn't mean that God, God doesn't have a hand or, or hair. You know, Jesus did, but God the Father doesn't. So when we talk about mean, being made in God's image, we're talking about our ability to know and to love. To know and to love. That's how we're like God. God knows and God loves. And that's what we share in two. We know things and then we are able to love. And love is, you know, psychological love is something different, but spiritual love, real love, is uh, in, the, in, in the will. We choose it. You know, when I first was thinking about becoming a friar, every day I didn't want to be a friar when I was in a novitiate. You know, I made a list. Okay, today I like it. No, I didn't like it yesterday, and I just had to see how I would end up at the end of the year. <laughs> But so I, it must happen to married couples too. Every day you don't want to be, you know, married. I would imagine it's, um, but you choose to do it, and we choose to love people in their weakness. Even it's a it's it's a choice. Psychological love is like the weather. You know, it's hot, it's cold, it's dry, changes. That's not what the kind of love you base your life on, or base your marriage on, or base my uh, my giving my life to God as a friar. Uh, it's it's a choice in the will. So, in all of that, what I just said, joy plays a role in all of these things that I was just talking about. Joy articulates or involves all every part of the human person. So, there's joy involved. It's it's in our intellect. Maybe you are a mathematician or something, and you know the joy of getting some formula right. Or maybe you know the joy of knowing some, learning some new scientific truth. There's just joy. Joy is involved with the intellect. Joy is involved with the memory. Memory, intellect, and will, the three parts of the, of the soul. So the, the joy is involved in your memory. You have memory, memories that bring joy to your mind, and then joys in our will. You know, the intellect and the will kind of work like a dog, like playing fetch with a dog. So the intellect is supposed to see what's true. So the intellect looks and says, that's true. Go get it, will. That's good. Go get that good thing. And then the will runs and gets it. So that's how and joy is involved, because this is like how happy a dog is to get that stick. We're happy, too when we get the good thing and when we get something beautiful or we get something justice in the world. So joy is involved in all, it's, you see how it makes our life better and greater, like all the emotions, even the psychological emotions and these spiritual things that have the same name, they help us so much. Okay, what did I do with you? I had a quote from him. Oh, here he is.
So he's talking about spiritual joy, and he says real joy, not fake joy, not joy born of denial or wishful thinking. The pain was real, and we were facing it together, but the joy was the real joy. For the Christian, joy isn't what happens when life goes perfectly. It's what happens when you know you're loved perfectly, even when your life is a mess. That's that spiritual joy, that real joy. Joy isn't winning. It's when you know you're, you've already won. You know, I, I think about it every Sunday. The tomb, the tomb is empty. Jesus is not in that tomb. So how can my day be bad after that? He's not in the tomb. He's not dead. He's alive. And he's going to come in a few moments, or he, we just had him come to us on the altar in a mystical way. So whatever happens to me after that during the day, who cares? I've, been, I've, I've had the Lord now in a mystical way, in a real way in my life. Uh, joy isn't an absence of pain. It's the presence of Jesus. So even these great martyrs, if you remember Thomas More, he told the guy before he cut off his head, hey, I forgive you, and someday we'll laugh about this in heaven. So it's not about, it's not about absence of pain. It's about you know you're in the presence of Jesus, and that is actually the goal of our life, what I call a mystic. A mystic is a person who is always aware of the presence of Jesus and the presence of God at all times. We have less and less times of not being aware of him, and that's something that we're working on. So this book is about claiming joy you were created for. It's a joy you can have right now, even if you're sitting in the ICU, because it doesn't depend on change in your circumstance. Rather, it depends on a change in you. So joy, uh, again, joy interacts with our intellect, our memory, and our will. I was thinking of our intellect, another part of joy, and our intellect is our imagination and our creativity, that's joyful. That's part where joy interacts in our life. Another part of joy, of the spiritual joy, as I was talking, was in the emotional, I mean, the spiritual life. In our theology, it's very joyful to think about and to meditate on these beautiful gifts, like Jesus becoming a baby. That's amazing. God becomes a baby so that no one would be afraid of him. Anybody afraid of a baby? I'm not. God became a baby, and it's very joyful. And then uh, joy is, of course, in our emotions. So catechism um, of the Catholic Church, number 2500, is, says this. The practice of goodness is accompanied by spontaneous spiritual joy and moral beauty. It reminds me of a, a Fulton Sheen story that this guy went to see these nuns somewhere. He was a rich guy. And he was visiting these nuns. And he said and the nun was taking care of a leper. And he said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the nun said, neither would I. <laughs> see, the joy comes when we're pouring ourselves out for others, when we're serving others. That's real joy. And you've, I think you've all experienced that. Likewise, truth carries with it joy and splendor of spiritual beauty. Truth is beautiful in itself. Truth in words, the rational expression of knowledge of created and uncreated reality, 
is necessary to man who is endowed with an intellect. So God gave us this intellect. We're created with an intellect like God to know and to love. And so our intellect is always seeking truth. That's what fulfills it. That's what drug addiction and alcoholism and all those other things are. They're trying to fill the truth with something else that doesn't work. But we're, we, we, we seek truth and beauty and goodness. But truth can also find other complementary forms of human expression, above all when it's a matter of evoking what is beyond words. Some truth is, you can't put all truth in words either. So there's the depths of the human heart. That's why we have art and poetry and all these stories because it's trying to evoke something that's beyond words. Or the exaltation of the soul. Any of these saints that experience ecstasy or these ecstatic states of prayer can't tell you what it is. They talk about it only in images. We have to use concrete things. For example, Mother Teresa has these, uh, how many mansions? Nine, 12? Mother, Mother Teresa has the, uh, of Avila has the mansions, and uh, John Clamacus has the ladder, and other people will have all these different images because it can't be put in the words. When we experience God on that deep level, there aren't going to be any more words that are possible. So they talk about it in those kinds of ways, and that includes like the mystery of God. So Christophonics says joy in our life is not a luxury. It's not something that's just be great if we had. It's a necessity, he says. This, this work of God, this work of joy in our life is a necessity. All right. What have I got next? Oh, some of the effects of joy. I wanted to read that from his book. And we're at 43 minutes. we got just a, 10 more minutes just to let you know where we're at. So what does joy do in our life exactly? What's the power of joy in our life? This is on page 9. It makes temptations easier to topple. You might prefer spiritual joy over the promise of passing pleasure. So when we're being tempted, joy can help us topple the temptations. It makes forgiving people easier. Why? Because that person may have taken something from you, but you didn't let them take the one thing that mattered. No one can take your relationship with God from you. No one can take that from you. So that's the only thing that matters. So you can be joyful. Joy makes it easy to pursue dreams because inevitably failures can't crush a joyful person. I was thinking of Thomas Edison, right, in his 1,000 or 5,000 light bulb tries. He said they weren't failures. They were 10,000 things that I knew didn't work after that. Joy makes you a natural leader and a faith sharer because it makes you magnetic and attractive and people want to follow your lead when they are around you. So that joy, a joyful person is, attracts other people to the faith and to God. Joy helps you when you get, joy helps you to get more work done. In fact, one uh, meta-analysis of over 275,000 people across more than 200 studies found that happy people aren't just more productive, they are also receive higher evaluations for quality of work, dependability, and creativity. Another study found that students who are more cheerful in college were more financially successful than their peers over a decade after graduation. 
Joy impacts your physical health. Harvard conducted an unprecedented study. Anyway, we'll just leave it there. Joy affects your health. And finally, joy makes you a force for good in the world. In the words of um, then Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, the deepest poverty is the inability of joy. The tediousness of life considered absurd and contradictory. The inability of joy presupposes and produces the inability to love, produces jealousy, avarice, all defects that devastate the life of an individual and of the world. The effects of joy, the necessity of joy, it's not something you can take or leave. It's a big part of God's plan for our life.